0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey,
0: everybody. Great one today, finally. My guest is Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Dr. El-Sayed is a doctor, which is why I call him Dr. El-Sayed. And he's not one of those doctors that overprescribed opioids. I would not. Have one of them on. No, Dr. El-Sayed is an epidemiologist. Why have an epidemiologist, Al? Well, because we're in a pandemic. That's why. And we as a country are not handling it well. And when I say we, I, of course, mean Donald Trump and his enablers. And by that, I mean Vice President Pence, Republicans in the Senate, and Republican governors. My God. These Republican governors, not all of them, Hogan of Maryland, Baker of Massachusetts, DeWine of Ohio, doing doing a fine job because there really shouldn't be anything partisan about a pandemic. You follow the science. You listen to epidemiologists because it's an epidemic. But wow. Uh, Governor Kemp of Georgia, Ron DeSantis in, in Florida, Abbott in Texas, Ducey in Arizona, Hey, let's open the state, but not implement any of the CDC guidelines. That's a good idea, isn't it? Kemp, you'll remember, opened tattoo parlors, barbershops, and massage parlors immediately, and then a week later announced that he was opening pickup bars. And wouldn't you know it, just as epidemiologists had warned, if you open up too fast, if you don't follow the guidelines, if you don't even encourage, your citizens to wear masks and socially distance, you know what's going to happen? Well, what's happened? So, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed will be with me shortly. He points out that other countries around the world have actually followed the science. They shut down, like we did, but they ramped up their testing, they did tracking and tracing, and when they did open, they followed strict guidelines. And what do you know? They gained control of the virus and have been able to open up their economies, their schools, and incidentally, have had far, far fewer deaths per capita than the United States. But now we have spikes all over our country, particularly in those states that opened up too fast and too recklessly. And guess what? Our economy is still in the toilet because of this president, because of his inattentiveness, because he didn't want the stock market to go down in February and March, because of his pathological inability to admit mistakes, because he cares not one iota about any other human being and has not one scintilla of remorse about the deaths of over 130,000 Americans. Because he is Donald Trump, the people of the United States have suffered absolutely unnecessary economic devastation and suffered the preventable deaths of tens and tens of thousands of Americans. Talk about American carnage. So we have to get rid of him and his enablers, Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, who is currently neck and neck in the polls against Democratic challenger Teresa Greenfield, In 2014, during the Ebola outbreak, Joni Ernst said that President Obama had displayed, quote, failed leadership. Two Americans died during the Ebola outbreak, too. So last Sunday, Dana Bash of CNN reminded Ernst of that and asked her on CNN if she believed that Donald Trump has displayed failed leadership. Now, after trying not to answer by bullshitting uh, some word salad, Bash asked her again whether Donald Trump had been guilty of failed leadership, and Ernst said no. Two deaths. The black president displayed failed leadership. 130,000 deaths. No failed leadership. Let's beat her. Do me a favor, my listeners. Give money to her Democratic opponent, Teresa Greenfield, who is running neck and neck with Ernst. Donate to Greenfield's campaign. For that matter, please help all the Democratic challengers to Trump's enablers in the Senate. Some of my favorites, Sarah Gideon, Speaker of the Maine House, who is leading Susan Collins in Maine. Susan Collins voted to confirm Kavanaugh she said because he assured her that Roe v. Wade is settled law. Well, her vote essentially sent him to the Supreme Court, the place where federal society judges like Kavanaugh go to unsettle settled law. Let me give you just a recent example. A couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court overturned by a 5-4 vote a Louisiana law that is designed to make it next to impossible for a woman in Louisiana to get an abortion. The law required a doctor who provides abortion have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 minutes of the clinic. Now that would have left just one doctor in the state of Louisiana to provide the nearly 10,000 women who seek abortions in the state each year. The whole point of the law was to prevent women From getting abortion services in Louisiana. Guess how Kavanaugh voted? To uphold the Louisiana law, of course. But get this, the Louisiana law was almost identical to a Texas law that the Supreme Court struck down in 2016. And guess what? Chief Justice Roberts, who had voted against overturning the Texas law, voted with the majority here, to overturn the Louisiana law. Why? Starry decisis. He cited precedent. In other words, this question had been settled. It was settled law. But that didn't matter to Brett Kavanaugh. He believes his job is to unsettle settled law, give money to Sarah Gideon, to defeat Susan Collins who voted to acquit Donald Trump, not because he hadn't broken the law, but because he learned his lesson. I'm going to be hawking for our Democratic challengers who have a chance to flip seats held by Trump's enablers. Let's beat Tom Tillis in North Carolina, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Steve Daines in Montana. Martha McSally in Arizona, David Perdue in Georgia, Kelly Loeffler in Georgia, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, Cindy Hyde-Smith in Mississippi, the one who joked in the last campaign about lynching. She's in a race. Mike Espy is on her heels. Let's get rid of Lindsey Graham. Back to Ernst. In this interview with Dana Bash, she kind of tried to back away from Trump on Black Lives Matter because, you know, most Americans... Disagree with Trump on this, and presumably most Iowans. And this is her way after four years of slavishly voting with Trump. She's breaking with him on slavery. That's going to make her whole? After voting to get rid of Obamacare, after voting for that enormous tax cut for those at the top, after voting against witnesses at the impeachment trial, after voting for his acquittal, After not a peep on anything, give me a friggin' break. You think maybe you're suddenly okay if you say that maybe, maybe, just, you know, maybe Trump is going just a little too racist. Now, I don't completely understand what Trump is doing, what he's been doing since Mount Rushmore. I I thought he had the racists. I know it's a distraction from the coronavirus and the economy, But is this a winning position? This week, Trump Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, after being pressed several times by reporters, said Trump was neutral on the Confederate flag. Neutral on the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag is about one thing. It represents the Confederacy. And the Confederacy was about one thing. On March 21st, 1861, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, gave what is known as the cornerstone speech. In the speech, Stevens laid out the Confederacy's rationale for seceding from the Union. He says that our nation's founders had believed, and I quote Stevens, quote, that the enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature that was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. He continued, those ideas, however, are fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the assumption of the equality of races. That was an error. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. That's what the Confederate flag stands for. The Confederate flag says that the great moral truth is that people of color are not equal to white people. And that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is, quote, his natural and normal condition. And Donald Trump is neutral on that. That's a winning strategy? The people of Mississippi disagree with him on the Confederate flag. Look, every racist who voted in 2016 voted for Donald Trump. But not everyone who voted for Trump was racist. Fat, dumb, and racist is no way to go through life, Mr. President. Okay, maybe what he's doing makes some sense. I'm I'm getting the feeling that he's losing support among older racists, especially those in nursing homes. There's, there's no one more racist than me, but I cannot pull the lever for Donald Trump again. Now, don't get me wrong. I firmly believe that in the history of our country, Donald Trump is the most racist president who did not personally own slaves. But I believe that Trump is personally responsible for killing tens of thousands of Americans. A good number of them, just as racist or almost as racist as me. So let's talk coronavirus with epidemiologist Abdul L. Syed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup <laughs> that means. That means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babble.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babble.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions.
1: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
0: Abdul El-Sayed, an epidemiologist who uh, was public health director for the city of Detroit. He's host of his own podcast, America Dissected. He conducts vivisection every week on America. It's very painful, but we learn a lot, Uh, (laughs) but this won't be painful today. Dr. El-Sayed is also the author of Healing Politics, a book about an epidemic that he identified before this current pandemic, but one which has only uh, been uh, exacerbated by COVID, and that is the American Epidemic of, of Insecurity and we'll discuss why Americans have grown to feel more and more insecure over the last uh, few decades. Uh, Doctor, welcome and thank you for joining us.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show and uh, to talk about uh, this very odd instructive moment.
0: Yeah, this pandemic has laid bare a lot of our our problems, uh, problems that uh, you identified in in this book, uh, but also that I think that Americans see even more clearly um, in terms of uh, the disparities of who is bearing the burden of this uh, and on and on and on. We'll talk about that. I, since you're an epidemiologist, I'd like to get your take on what's happening right now. What is your take on what is happening now in this moment, in this uh, COVID pandemic? We see the spikes in, uh, in a lot of states, uh, severe spikes. What's your, what's your take right now?
4: we We should not have been here. Uh, we should have, in every moment of this pandemic, uh, been able to prevent this particular moment, whether it was, you know, having a competent public health force that would have sprung into action well before this, you know, inferno of a pandemic became an inferno and it was still a spark. when, you know we were in the first throes of this wave in 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 March and April, when we knew we needed to build a contact tracing force and, expand our testing capacities, and extend our uh, lockdowns to make sure that we had knocked the virus back. This was not an inevitable moment, and none of it was, um, but but here we are. And b- because of the way that we mistake the conversation about COVID-19 for the actual epidemic curve, it feels like it's a second wave, but the truth of the matter is we never really got through the first wave. We sort of plateaued, and uh, we were slowly declining, and then all of a sudden... Uh, right around mid-June, we started to see increases again. The hard part about tracing an epidemic is that you are both looking through a time machine. So what we're seeing uh, in every day's case numbers is actually a reflection of what happened five to seven to 10 days ago because of the time it takes for uh, the virus to develop um, in your body and cause symptoms and the time it takes for tests to come back. And then also is exponential dynamic rather than a linear dynamic. And I think our minds are so used to thinking in straight lines that, you know, if you had a little bit today, you're going to have a little bit more tomorrow and a little bit more the next day. But we're talking about uh, exponential dynamics. So a little bit today can mean substantially more tomorrow and even more than that the next day. And so it sort of boggles our ability to really make smart public policy because the dynamics are off and we're looking through a time machine to seven to 10 days ago. And so you've got explosive dynamics, seven days uh, behind. And so it, it's really hard to meet the moment where you are, and you're almost always working too late. When we have had me- multiple days uh, of consistent growth nationwide, um, and certainly in some of our most populous states. And so it's really just frustrating to watch. And you, know, you think about the people on the, the the back end of this, the people who are dying, the families they leave behind, the, the livelihoods lost, and it, it really is staggering. It's devastating.
0: Your first analysis of the delay that we didn't <laughs> we didn't have a public health infrastructure, a competent one in place. Also, obviously, we had a president who said this is not a problem for six weeks to two months, basically. But it's not like everything you talked about was like, well, that's 2020 hindsight. No one would said that. Mm-hmm. Every <laughs> you know any epidemiologist like you knew that, I mean, mm. and Fauci knew it. And uh, Fauci, by the way, because you were a public health official, I want to talk to you about that, because I find his position fascinating. Mm. And what he chooses to say what he chooses not to say. For example, they opened up, you know, people went to bars, young people. I met Fauci uh, at a press conference like a week ago was, I was young too. I understand that you want to go to a <laughs> bar but uh don't do that anyway so (laughs) no one's at fault we're not we're not faulting anyone okay it's not a blame game but you can spread it if you're asymptomatic now what that means is anyway (laughs) uh, i got to know who
4: anthony fauci was a little bit earlier than i think most folks because you know i'm a public health nerd and uh he is a gem of a communicator and his capacity to walk a tightrope, um, as you were talking about, between staying always consistent to the science, but also you know, making sure he doesn't get into a politically
0: precarious position is just, it's, it's immense. It's, it's so impressive. And it's fascinating to watch. It's just fascinating. I love watching that. So we're seeing the spike in cases. We're also seeing... These ICUs filling up in places like Houston and, and Arizona and all over. So that's very serious. But on the other hand, we're not seeing a spike in deaths. Every death, of course, is, is horrible. And I hold Donald Trump responsible for tens and tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. Speaking of American carnage, it's, it's on his hands. But first of all, are the deaths not spiking in the same way that the cases are? I would suspect this for a couple reasons. One, we are doing more testing, so the cases go up. Two, we're, we're treating it. We know how to treat it better. Is that right? We do. Uh,
4: we, we do know how to treat it better, and I think we are learning from uh, the first most
0: serious waves in, uh, in the Northeast. Is that like we're better with ventilators? We know how to do that? Is it this, uh, what is it, what's the drug they're giving? Uh, I want to say Recyclovir or something. What Remdesivir. Is yeah. So, it's, well, it's you know, come on. Let me say, same thing. I name, played same one name. in a sketch. I played one <laughs> in a sketch, doctor.
4: I, I actually think that there are a couple of things that are happening here in the dynamics. And on the one hand, we've gotten faster at testing people with symptoms and testing people who may have been exposed. And so what that means is that we, we may be identifying people earlier in the their natural history, natural course of disease, which means that the lag between the time we know that they're sick and the time they might die if they die is bigger. And so it looks right now like we're having a spike without a spike in hospitalizations and deaths. But what we're starting to see is that that pickup in, in hospitalizations is, in deaths is coming it's just coming a lot slower because we're ascertaining that people have disease faster. That's called lead time bias in epidemiology. And it makes you think that the disease is, is not as bad as it, as it really is because you're better at ascertaining it early. But the second thing that's happening is you're right. We, our treatment is actually getting better. And that's a good thing. We're just learning a lot more about the disease. I mean, this is a disease we can't forget that's only about seven months old in humanity. Right, and, and so we're we're starting from scratch on a lot of this, and so uh, we're learning more about a the the pathophysiology. Like we had thought that this was a, a lung disease, it turns out that it's not actually infecting the lungs; it's in, infecting the blood vessels near the lungs, and frankly, everywhere else in the in the body. And so we're getting better at at, at thinking about how to treat it. Uh, We understand that a lot of the death actually comes from an overreaction of uh, our body's immune system. And so uh, thinking about both how to target the virus through drugs like remdesivir, but also thinking about how to knock back our body's sometimes overeager immune response um, is helping us to treat it. And then the third piece is also that I think there is a differential paying of attention to... The news and the and the warnings. And so you do have a lot of younger folks who are going out and, you know, pretending like, quote unquote, COVID is over, but their older folk, right? Their seniors are being extra cautious. And I think what's happening is that you're getting a younger disease distribution of folks who have a lower probability of passing away in the first place. But it really is only a matter of time because almost every senior I know is bubbled up with somebody who's younger. And so I do worry that, you know, even if as a senior you're protecting yourself from uh, the most common exposures, you may be exposed to somebody who's younger who may be exposing themselves and then may be a conduit to the disease to you. So I would not be surprised. In fact, I, I, I hate to say it, but I, I predict um, that the, the hospitalization and death rate is going to climb uh, over time because, you know, that's what disease does.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, I hope you're wrong. Me too. Let me ask you about uh, tracking and tracing. Because, to me, this is insane. This is absolutely insane. Did you see the plan that Slavitt, uh, Andy Slavitt, and uh, and Scott Gottlieb had put together? Mm Mm-hmm. And and that was basically to put out like 150,000 people to do the tracking and tracing, go door to door and find these people and get them like hotel rooms and actually would help hotels, but to isolate these people. And it's the only way to do this, isn't it? Isn't that the only way to do this? I mean, this is the thing, right? Is that the whole goal
4: of quote unquote, flattening the curve, was to get us to a point where we could then contain all of the cases after that. Uh, The way I talk about it is we wanted to move from, quote-unquote, mass social distancing to precision social distancing. And you can't do precision social distancing unless you have the army of contact tracers that we need to be able to do it. And so we did all of this. We shut down our economy. We stayed in our homes. We quarantined and we flattened the curve. And then we had not taken the time or effort to build out the infrastructure we needed to keep that curve on its downward trajectory. And here we are again in a position where the number of cases and the growth of cases has vastly overwhelmed our ability to contact trace, which means that the only plausible solution here uh, especially in states where you have a runaway transmission, is potentially to go back into into the kind of mass social distancing that we just came out of. And if your goal in the first place was to protect the economy, this is like the worst possible thing you could do, right? You know, you think about in a, in, in the electronics, there's the concept of a blackout and a brownout. And a blackout's when like all the electricity just goes out. But a brownout is when it kind of flickers on and off and then burns out your entire electrical system. And we're like browning out the economy because we couldn't get a coherent approach to actually taking on the virus. And here we are again.
0: You, you must be watching what the rest of the world is doing. There are other countries have successfully implemented the strategy that we should have implemented and their economies are getting back on, uh, on their feet.
4: That's right, that's right. In every country but Sweden, of course, which everybody was pointing to and saying, see, look at Sweden, they're you great. Can do and, this. <laughs> and, and what happened with Sweden is that in in effect, actually, if you, you know, they're a small country, about 10 million people, their death rate is one of the highest in the world because they were one of the only countries in the world that just sort of experimented with this idea of quote unquote herd immunity, which is just the worst reinterpretation of a really helpful concept uh, to do a very destructive thing.
0: We don't even know if, if we, this will have herd immunity. That's right. Do we? We don't. Explain that. Explain that, because there's so many people go like, "Well, as soon as we get here, herd intuit- immunity." And I'm going like, r- r- "Really? I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's a, there's no guarantee that's right that happens." Could you explain that? You're an epidemiologist. I, I, I didn't even play one in a sketch. I just played it, a doctor.
4: <laughs> we'll go ahead and give you the epidemiology credentials uh, for having played a doctor. Um, <laughs> so let's imagine the world was just you and me. We're stuck on an island from which we're gonna be saved in in at least two weeks, but it's just you and me. And both of us are are susceptible, but I then get the disease, I go uh, away from you so I don't don't pass it on to you, Um, and then I become immune. And you're now still susceptible, but I'm the only person who potentially could have given it to you. And if that's the case, then you're de facto immune, just like me, because there's no other way for you to get it. Herd immunity is that.
0: That's assuming that you now can't give it to me. That's right because
4: because I'm immune, right? In that scenario. But here's the problem, right? To 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 answer your question. The reason I would be immune is because my body generated antibodies to this disease. But we assume that those antibodies last for a very long time. But if uh-huh. those antibodies uh-huh. don't last as long as we think they do, if they only last, you know, 3 months, um which is possible, then you then become susceptible again because those antibodies just didn't last so even if you got the disease which is what we're presuming would create the herd immunity because enough people get the disease that you're now protected because they're thought to be immune if they don't keep those antibodies on board and uh they become susceptible again then that herd immunity fails and so you know right now we just don't know enough about the biology of the body's response to this disease to know for sure that if you've been exposed to the disease and you had it, that in fact, your immunity is going to last for a very long time, and that from a public health perspective, we would have that herd immunity because of it. And so this is a very big open question that complicates everything from uh, how we think about dealing with people who've had the disease uh, and what their restrictions might be to, you know, what our approach to a vaccine uh, and rolling out a vaccine in a population could be. So it really is a big question, and you're right to ask it.
0: Right, and, and everybody assumed this, and you know what happens when you assume. You make an ass out of Uma Thurman. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Abdul El-Sayed.
5: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana.
2: It doesn't get any better than this.
0: epidemiologist and uh, author of the book, Healing Politics. B- Before we go to your book, uh, Healing Politics, which is about the epidemic of insecurity, I understand you're on the, the Biden task force, their team on, on health care. Is that, is that correct?
4: I mean, the, the task force recommendations are about to come out. And so I did serve on the task force.
0: Oh, yeah. It's a product of your work and that of, what, seven other people? Is that what I understand?
4: That's right. That's right. There were five um, appointees from the Biden side and three appointees from the, the Bernie side. And, um, you know, we had some, some great co chairs in uh, Representative Pramila Jayapal and uh, the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy.
0: Okay. Well, I want to ask you about that because I know that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, backed you, showed up for you in Michigan when you ran for governor in 18. You know, when I first came to the Senate in 2009, I had done events for Bernie in the 90s when he was in in Congress, done fundraisers for him. And I did a big one in Burlington in 2006. So I went up to him on the floor and I said, Bernie, you know what? If you want me to, I'll join you on single payer. But I think we're 58 votes short. So we might have to do something else. And he laughed about as much as you just did. Anyway, so... (laughs) um, So I want to ask you about this because I want to ask you about the Bernie's plan on uh, Medicare for all. And uh, the reason I want to ask you this is, again, I am single payer. Be fine with me. There are lots of developed countries that have single payer, but they all have private insurance, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was very worried during the campaign. We took 40 seats. We flipped them in the house. In 18. And part of the reason for that was these are, by definition, at best for us purple districts, right? They had mm-hmm. been represented by Republicans. And healthcare was the biggest issue by far. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I thought I heard was don't take away my health insurance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do not take that away. Uh, I. I think the thing that Obama got criticized the most for was if you like your health insurance, you can keep it. And that wasn't the case because insurance companies every year make different policies. I mean, it was a kind of a silly thing to say. I I understood what he meant. But I do think that Americans, a lot of Americans rely on their insurance from their employer and they like it. About 70% of Canadians have some supplemental private insurance. So you understand what I'm saying. What's mm-hmm. what's your response to that? So um, I'll respond to a couple of the the points. I
4: think number one, um, you know, in Canada, their single payer system still doesn't cover a lot of the basic things that um, would be covered in both Bernie and Jay proposals. Um, and so folks have to take on that supplemental insurance because, you know, it's incomplete insurance. And the hope would be that Medicare for All here would be complete, meaning you didn't necessarily have to have it. The second thing in, in Canada is they, they don't actually have duplicative insurance. They have supplemental insurance, as you talked about. And um, even under Bernie's proposal, you you can have supplemental insurance. It's just that the proposal is so broad that it doesn't actually include much to supplement. Bernie's plan doesn't abolish all private insurance. It would include some form of private insurance. It's just the duplicative stuff that's the problem. And here's the other point, right? Um, if, you, if you pull Medicare for All and uh, you know you ask folks how they feel about Medicare for All, support's in the 70s, and that's a big deal. But then you know a lot of folks would push back and say, well, if you tell people that they're going to lose their private insurance, support dips. But here's the part they don't tell you. If you tell them that they can keep their doctor, which, by the way, under Medicare for All, you fundamentally can simply because there is no network, in-network or out-of-network. You literally can go see what doctor you want, Uh and Uh almost all doctors would take it because it would be covering 99.99% of everything that you'd need covered. The support actually goes up beyond what it was in the first place. And the mistake that we've often made when we've proposed health reform is that we've tried to bake in the insurance industry into the system. And the insurance industry, as you and I both know, is entirely about the profits uh, that they can make off of, uh, in effect, gatekeeping around healthcare. And um, that's where the problems lie. And so when President Obama said, you know, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, The problem was is that he was assuming that the health insurance industry uh, would play on that terrain. And, of course, they don't because for them, they make their money by negotiating sweetheart deals with a certain group of doctors and keeping their costs down so they can keep it as profits. You know, my issue with private health insurance is that I see it as fundamentally a middleman that we've allowed to persist and exist in our healthcare system for no added value except for that a lot of people profit off of it. You know, if we're going to design a healthcare system, as as you well know, we ought to do it in a way that's the most efficient and most effective. And the best way to do that is cut out the middleman.
0: We can talk around this a a lot. I, I just would say that we can regulate insurance companies like they do in France, like they do in Germany, like they do in all these developed countries that have insurance. And there are different ways to do it. And I just did not want to lose those 40 seats in the House. As I said to Bernie, I'm, I'm with you, but I think we're, at that point, 58 votes short. Okay, so we've covered that. You say this is being released today, right, the, the result of the task force. What would you come up with? What would you come up with?
4: Well, uh, you know, I'll tell you, it's it's not Medicare for all, as much as I wish it well, was. Well, there are three but. of you and five of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, but I do think it goes a long way to um, meet this moment uh, with COVID nineteen and and to respond to some of the biggest failures in. Uh, our healthcare system. You know, one of the biggest wins I thought was the commitment to rein in the the prescription drug industry and. Um, oh my to God! Yes. <laughs> empower Medicare to finally negotiate not just on behalf of Medicare beneficiaries but on behalf of all of the American people. And that's a big deal. So that's number one. Number two, you know, uh, Joe Biden ran on a public option and um, we realized that um, you know, the, the version of the public option that he ran on could be made so much stronger. What we've come up with is that you know, it will be administered publicly through, through Medicare, that it will be automatically accessible and enrolled in for folks earning less than 200% of poverty um, for low-income folks. In the time of COVID, it can't just be a gold plan, it has to be a platinum plan, meaning it covers 90% of the uh, healthcare costs that somebody might incur. That it ought to be the kind of plan that um, folks can rely upon and um, know they have access to, even if they have employer-sponsored health insurance, so they ought to be able to take it up if and when they need it. And then a couple of other points that we're really excited about include an executive order, a commitment for an executive order on health equity, to engage all of government in taking this on, eliminating some of the big barriers that immigrants have uh, to getting healthcare in our country, whether it's the quote-unquote public charge rule or this five-year ban on getting um, services that people can have after they've immigrated, and uh, you know being able to invest in doubling the federally qualified health centers. Uh, and funding for them in our country uh, to take on the severe lack in rural health care. And uh, one one that I'm particularly uh, proud of and, 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 and feel is critical, I ran for governor on a single-payer health plan in Michigan, and there was a provision in the ACA called the 1332 waiver that would have subsidized those kinds of state-based universal insurance programs, and Biden's recommendations make a commitment to that program. So I think there's a lot there and a lot further to go.
0: Yeah, there's so much to talk about. This is, it's such a complex issue, and that's part of the uh, um, Medicare for All. The, one of the advantages of it is that it simplifies everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you talk about pharma, my goodness. I, you know, because I remember Bernie would go like, the health care industry makes, uh, you know, $100 billion a year in profits. Most of that was pharma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. and and the rest of the world pays like thirty to forty cents on the same drugs we pay. Mm-hmm. Now I have a solution to this. Have you heard my solution to this? What was that? There's only two countries in the world that allow these pharmaceutical companies to advertise on television and to deduct, mm-hmm. take a, a tax deduction for it. And okay, if they're going to do that, this I, I think we should regulate it in a way and you know in those commercials like the last half of it is always the negative side effects that you can have yep (laughs) speaking of like a million miles a minute yeah they go fast and they have beautiful music they very comforting and then they have the actors in the commercial you know they're riding it's a couple riding bike around a lake they're listening to light jazz in a gazebo uh, That's a uh, grandfather having a three legged race with his granddaughter. Uh, <laughs> it's a couple antiquing. Instead of that stuff, instead of the actors doing that, why don't we require them to act out the side effects? <laughs> so it would be like taking Ubetrix may cause non Hodgkin's lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and other kinds of <laughs> lymphoma.
4: Um, <laughs> let's see. you know, I, I'm just, uh, I'm just imagining how this might go.
0: <laughs> I think you end with, uh, it just imagine, you know, when they have the, the woman with her daughter doing Tai Chi in the park, if she has like a uh, projectile diarrhea, the girl, <laughs> people are not going to buy the Ubetrix. They're just not going to buy it. You see? And so this is to me, a brilliant way of getting the costs down on, on pharmaceuticals because they just charge an arm and a leg for those that they advertise on tv right that's right I, i'll tell you um one of the one of the
4: recommendations from the task force was uh to stop subsidizing uh those
0: commercials as business costs good for you good for you good for the task force but is it too late to get this in you know i'm gonna call them and let them know
4: that we need to like rush this last one in i just I think it would go so much further in terms of um, uh, really forcing people to have that conversation with their doctor.
0: <laughs> Stop taking Ubetrix if your tongue swells to three times its normal size. <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff to talk about uh, when we're talking about healthcare reform, and we've, we've done enough. We've done enough. But, you know, certainly hospitals, and you write about it in your, your damn book. That's a good transition to your damn book, okay? Uh, the basic thesis of the book is that you're an epidemiologist, and there's an epidemic of insecurity. Americans are feeling more and more insecure in so many different ways, and have been for quite a while. Part of it is healthcare, but you really, you know, go down a long list of reasons that Americans, even even you write about people who are making a lot of money or feel insecure. Give me a wrap on that. You know, I um,
4: uh, ran for office statewide. Um, You have the experience of doing this too. And you, you know, start with this conventional wisdom that people in different parts of uh, a state um, who work different jobs and experience the world differently as a function of who they are, that their complaints are going to be different. I started to to campaign and, you know, I thought that I was trading my epidemiologist hat for a, a candidate hat. But, you know, as I'd come home from different parts of the state, uh, whether it was a place like Flint or Detroit or a place like the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, I couldn't help but recognize the patterns in what people were asking about, why it is that their kid's school looks exactly like it did 30 years ago when they went there, why it is that, you know, in a state that's defined by its fresh water, people still can't afford basic water and water poison 9,000 kids in a place like Flint why they have to worry about getting sick if in fact they have insurance because they worry about the debt that might follow them Um, why they can't find high quality jobs in their communities anymore Uh, and those jobs if they exist have been turned into gigs with lower pay and fewer benefits and so these challenges it didn't matter if you're talking to poor working or retired black folk in places like detroit or poor or working or retired white folk in places like Kalkaska, they were the same questions. And so as I thought about this moment in our politics, the election of Donald Trump, the failure of state and local government in, in Michigan across the board, whether it was Flint or the shutdown of the health department that I had just rebuilt in Detroit, I realized that there was something broader here. And that's the fact that all of the systems that we've relied upon to deliver the basic means of a dignified life Uh, in our uh, communities that these systems, healthcare or housing or education or infrastructure or voting itself or the entire economy, that they've all sort of been captured by um, the the, the profit motive uh, of a small few number of operators to the exclusion of the rest of us. That epidemic, right, uh, that I talk about in the book is the subjective experience of that, the anxiety and the fear that it brings up and the way that that sets us up to be demagogued and divided by people who tell us that the reason that these systems are failing us is because other people have taken rather than uh, the fact that these systems have been dominated by the very folks who benefit most from those systems. And so um, I-, I wanted to, to break that down and introduce this idea uh, and also introduce a way of talking about it, as an epidemic.
0: Well, what's what's interesting about about this to me, reading your book, is that th- this is wide ranging. I mean, you go through so many aspects of the way life works now that makes people feel insecure. Whether it is the cost of college, whether it, it's healthcare, there is the disease of despair. It, you go on and on. There's mental illness. There's, I mean, and that has been exacerbated by obviously. Uh, everybody uh, having a shelter in place. So there's just a litany of these. And my feeling is is that I think that people reading this will absolutely agree with every point you make. And that these are things that the next president, the Joe Biden, I hope he wins, Mm -hmm. he has to win, that he has to address. And... Last week, it was last week, I think, that Sean Hannity asked President Trump what his goals were for the next term, and he had nothing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Biden, he's been along with us, been uh, spending a lot of time at home, and he hasn't been out there. He hasn't been doing rallies like somebody (laughs) irresponsibly. And, And Trump has been digging himself a hole, and when your opponent's digging himself a hole, you let him dig. But Biden is going to have to answer the question that Hannity asked. And the good news is, is that the answers to those questions, I believe all Americans support us on. Not all, but a a large majority. You talk about broadband. Obviously, we need universal broadband. There are a lot of kids who don't have access to Broadband. And that is part of the dysfunction that has been revealed by this pandemic, the racial disparities and who's bearing, who's dying during this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: I really appreciate the point that you're making because I think if we, we want to win and we have to win because you know nothing short of democracy is on the line, we can't just allow the contrast between... Donald Trump and anyone running against Donald Trump to carry the day. Because unfortunately, that's the mistake that we made in 2016. We have answers and we have solutions. And Um, that more than anything else is what the American people are looking for, right? We're in the middle of a global pandemic. We're having a reckoning about our country's painful and broken history when it comes to race and racism. And we need to be able to full-throatedly embrace the fact that we do have solutions and we can see them enacted if we win. And, you know, the the point that you made about racial disparities in health, COVID-19 has shown a light on the way that this epidemic of insecurity Uh, shapes access to health and health care in some pretty profound ways. But it's not just COVID, right? A lot of folks are like, oh, well, the disparities are really big when it comes to COVID-19. They don't realize that it's actually really big when it comes to any cause of death, heart disease, diabetes, strokes, cancers, infant mortality, right? All of them uh, are diseases where Black Americans and Latinx folks and Native Americans suffer two to three times the rates of death. And um that is not about pathology that happens under the skin right it's not about the ways that cells get processed and, and viruses uh enter those cells etc no it is about pathology that happens above the skin and those are the kinds of pathologies that we need to be proposing solutions to and i believe will win us votes not just not just you know relying on on the other guy losing his votes
0: i think people are seeing it uh, i i do think the pandemic has laid this stuff bare for people to see uh, obviously, the, the the murder of George Floyd in my hometown has, I think, opened people's eyes. What Trump is doing now, what he did at Mount Rushmore, what he did on the 4th of July, I, I don't understand his strategy there. Uh, I thought he had all the racists. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently not. Uh, I, mean, I have this theory that maybe older racists, he's losing their support.
4: I mean, I'll tell you this, right, you know, at some point, uh, you can hold on to your ideology for so long. But, you know, when you have a president who is actively denying a disease that's killed 130,000 Americans, it becomes really hard to support him no matter what. And, you know, he's trying to foment a culture war against the realities of the fact that people's friends and neighbors and loved ones have been dying for months and his government is doing nothing about it. He's losing, folks. That's a good thing, uh, because I think it speaks to something good in us all. I do think that in this moment we do focus a lot on on this notion of people being irredeemable. And actually I actually think that we have to step in and say look, even if you supported Donald Trump in 2016, it doesn't make you a racist. It doesn't make you irredeemable. And even if you do have some racist ideas, right? We can come together to address them and move beyond them. And you don't have to be a racist forever just because you've done or said a racist thing. And I, I think that that focus on the future and empowering people beyond the worst in themselves by embracing the best in them, has to be part of what we do. And I think focusing in on those solutions to problems that we're all facing can be a way to try and get to some of that deeper healing. You know, we've got to start treating racism not as a function of who someone is, but rather as a disease that they're suffering from. And we need to excise that disease to rehabilitate and empower them. Um, And I think that that's something that we've sort of been missing in our political culture for some time.
0: I really do believe that post- It wasn't just the murder of George Floyd, although it was so obscene that I think it sparked what we saw. But I think it was a rash of these of late. And I think that people actually, I mean, you see it in the polling. A large majority now of Americans are saying, yep, we have systemic racism. I think there's been a change. And I agree with you. There are people who have implicit bias that they're not aware of. And I think that they're beginning to deal with it. And I think that's a really good thing. And I I don't know what the president is thinking here, but God bless him for just, I I think he's shooting himself in the foot, but like like defending the Confederate flag, he disagrees with the people of Mississippi on that. Yeah. That's not a winner. (laughs) That's not a winner right now.
4: And it shouldn't be. If your campaign is about protecting the legacy of, dead people who were traitors to your country. And that's the campaign that you're going to run for president of the United States
0: in 2020? Goodbye. They're going to do everything they can to suppress votes. The way things are going and the way Trump is treating this, this is going to be around in November. Mm-hmm. And people are not going to want to go to the polls and they're going to prevent people from voting by mail. And two, what you said, that democracy is at stake. And three, if it's close, he won't leave. So <laughs> we, uh, Biden has to win by a lot. You know, you talk about infrastructure. You just talk about that. Americans want us, you know, to have infrastructure. They want us to have railroads and airports and roads and bridges that just even resemble the other <laughs> developed countries. It, we're, they want a competent government again. They don't want a government that's filled with just, you know, with cronies and crooks.
4: Yeah. I, um, we, we have a lot of healing to do as a country. And one of, one of the things that I, I grew up in a household that was really quite odd, um, even, even by American standards, so far as my father. Yes, you uh, cover
0: that in the book, and, and it's very odd. Go ahead. It,
4: it is. Um, it. Uh, my, my father was is a, a an immigrant from Egypt, uh, as is my mother. But I was raised by my stepmother, who is a daughter of the American Revolution. And um, I spent a lot of my summers in Egypt, <laughs> where uh, I got to see my country from from afar. I got to think about what it means to be an American outside of America, um, and that's not something that a lot of folks who grow up here. Uh, get to do, and so you know, I think about what it means to see somebody for how they see themselves and where they see themselves, and be able to empathize with the highest and best in in them. And I think we have an opportunity coming out of this election not to ignore the past, not to pretend like it didn't exist, not to uh, sweep a lot of the worst in what the Trump era has created under the rug, but to see the best in people and help them overcome the worst of that last moment to be their best. And I I do hope that that empathy and that belief in our future can guide us because I worry a lot about Uh, what might happen if this, you know, resentment, uh, us versus them politics continues to divide us. Um, And, you know, make no mistake, it's not like even if we beat Donald Trump, that Trumpism is gone or that even Donald Trump is gone. It's just that, um, you know, they no longer have the platform that they've had. And and the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we pull out what's best in people to defeat Trumpism, not just defeat Donald Trump?
0: I hope that happens. Me too. I know what I want to talk to you about, Flint. What's going on in Flint? I mean you're the you're the director of public health of Detroit, Detroit's on Flint, but you're director of public health in Michigan. Michigan by the way <laughs> is surrounded by fresh water, as you point out. It's got uh, you got your uh, Lake Michigan, you got your Lake uh, Superior, you got your Lake Huron and your Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. Which what percentage of the earth's fresh water surrounds Michigan? It's like 21%. <laughs> Okay, so you're a state that is surrounded by 21% of the fresh water on Earth. What's going on with the water in Flint now?
4: We still have not completed um, the full replacement of the piping in Flint. And what that means is that people still don't trust their water. Now, the state will say that testing has shown that lead levels in the water are within normal limits, which then forces a bigger question about, like, why are there <laughs> What's normal water? Yeah, normal? <laughs> yeah. Lead is not normally in water. There is no normal limit of lead in water, right? Normal is zero. And you can imagine, right, the people in Flint have heard that before.
0: So do they trust it? Uh, no. So uh, when they say it's down to acceptable levels, what level is that? Is that a level that I have my water? Is that a level that most Americans have in their water? What is that? So we do know
4: that, unfortunately, because we've assented to these ideas that there is some quote-unquote normal level of lead in water, that (laughs) a lot of Americans, unbeknownst to them, have lead in their water, particularly in urban America, uh, where a lot of these buildings were built in a time when uh, we thought lead was a perfectly acceptable thing to be building pipes out of. And, And what we also know is that Even the smallest amount of lead in water or in paint chips, um, which is the more common place where kids are exposed to lead, can, can have devastating impacts on childhood development. And so what we really need as a country is a commitment to taking lead out of literally everything. And a lot of folks will, as always, say, well, it's too expensive to do. And my question is, well, you know, if protecting our kids' brains isn't our number one priority, then what is? Like, well, what else is there that you ought to be investing in if it's not protecting small brains from a poisonous chemical that people put there in the first place and can be removed? You know,
0: the number one capital, the most important capital we should have as a country is our children's brains. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about capital, <laughs> I mean, you know, is a kid getting lead in his bloodstream and hurting his brain development would that kid otherwise have figured out how to suck the co2 out of the air mhm i mean mm-hmm. what a what an unbelievable stupid <laughs> you know, this is this is where uh uh i think biden i mean when you talk about infrastructure pipes water pipes my goodness i mean that we haven't done that that's crazy, and this president—that is as far from his radar as anything is—is is the you know the pipes in Flint. You could care less.
4: I mean, and it's it's clear he could care less.
0: He couldn't care less.
4: You're right. He could not care less.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know
4: what it is, right, is, is that my, my public school should have been better. I, um... <laughs>
0: or maybe, well, or maybe enough. like everybody says, I should just learn English. <laughs> uh, th- this was great. I in- really enjoyed this. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again Survey.
2: The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age old question who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Once
3: upon a beat.